All right, everyone. So welcome to our fifth session of this class on the Dharma life. And uh, we'll begin with a chance to share about the material from the last time, just to kind of wrap that up now that you've had a chance to engage with it yourselves. So just as a reminder, um, there was a reading that was the Chaitanya Sutta about the naturalness of um, kind of the unfolding of many of these beautiful mental qualities that we talked about last time. And in particular, that gladness pentad that Diana was talking about and how each one is just naturally goes from one to the other. And then there was also, um, oh, and you were to reflect on this naturalness and see if you noticed that in your own practice, either on or off the cushion. And then there was also a handout that gave some of the potential conditions for samadhi. I mean, there are many of them and they're described in different ways, but the idea was looking at some of the lists um, uh, with some ideas there and to reflect also if that uh, made sense in your own practice. So I wonder if anyone has any comments about, about those things. Yeah, Evie. I guess my comment is, I wonder, like, to me, certainly sort of one thing follows from the next, right? Like one thing gives rise to other good things, right. but I kind of was surprised that it was as linear, or, or I'm surprised if anybody, I mean, maybe it is, and I'm just not noticing every step, but I could... I don't have an example in the top off the top of my head, but I definitely feel like one thing leads to another good thing, but not always in that exact order. And, and I'm curious fine. what you guys have to say about that. Yeah, I see Diane is nodding also. The, the, the order is not exact, and some of them are kind of simultaneous, and some of them feed back and influence ones earlier. So it's, yeah, kind of like that. Do, do you have more to add, Diana? Oh, maybe the only thing I would add is sometimes um, things get presented as just for the benefit of teaching or, you know, as a pedagogical tool is kind of neat and tidy. And then when we practice with it in daily life, maybe it doesn't, or on the cushion, it doesn't show up that way, but it's helpful to have that schema in our minds, either the naturalness of it or just that, you know, this positive, cycle we often talk about vicious cycles right but the fact that there can be this positive type of cycle so yeah christy um i feel a little embarrassed about this but there's a feeling that it's very motivating <laughs> to see this it, it's really like oh maybe I should really make that extra effort to be super wise and skillful and follow all the precepts all the time because I really want this cascade to happen in my life. So there's a little embarrassment that like to not have this, that I just wouldn't do it normally, but, but to see that this whole thing transpires, it's like, oh, that's more motivating to do that. That's great. Yeah. I bet you're not the only one who had that, that kind of thought. 
And it's also kind of humbling uh, just and, you know, compassion generating to watch our minds where we know this is true, but, you know, nonetheless, we fall into habit patterns all the time. So that's why it's nice to have these reminders and to have a sangha and, you know. And, and maybe I'll just add one thing to, to your list there, uh, Kim. And this is sometimes why the suttas can be really supportive of practice because they bring to mind things that maybe we already know in some kind of way, but to see them in a sutta, you know, just, I don't know, reinforces things we don't know or introduces new ideas. At least that's how it is for me. It's kind of really supports my practice in that way. Uh, Jerry. So um, I understood that at the time that this, what I'm about to share happened, and I hadn't read the readings. So when I read the readings today, it, it, it actually fit what I was already aware of, but uh, which is uh, in the Eightfold Path, I realized taking that program, time to put the, what is the, uh, you know, it's time to actually do things differently. <laughs> it's like, because that's really what it's about. So uh, Thanksgiving, I decided that sort of a day before, a wholesome thing, I didn't want to cook a turkey up. So I, we were going to get up early meeting the dog and I, and we were going to take the hour and a half drive to the beach. And then the other thing I'm working on, I'm a little bit too many people to admit this to, is that I, if I'm going to do the path of meditate, and my love of getting, of smoking marijuana, really, it's not consistent. Even though I don't want to say that. I, you know, I find myself online thinking, well, if I drive to the store, so it's 10 minutes to 7 in the morning, and then 7, and then 7, 10. And there I am, aware that I made the choice to take the dog and I to the beach, and there is no pot in my pocket. There's no pot around me. I'm totally straight. I've been wholesome. And it's just like the power of that was was almost frightening. It was like in the mountaintops, I was so awake and, you know, everything was very much alive. And, and uh, driving on a pretty morning, it was cold out with the sun coming up over the hilltops. It really is the dharma of things rising and passing, rising and passing. You have no choice unless you pull over. <laughs> you have to let it go. And it was just very powerful. And to me, that relates to the readings that you wanted us to do. Nice. Thank you. Yeah. Sometimes things have an impact that we don't anticipate. Are there any more? comments or questions about the reading? Okay, well, um, so today we want to uh, make a bit of a transition to the next topic. Um, the last few weeks, we were going through kind of the three major areas of practice. So we started with ethics and relationship, which is essentially sila, right? And then we did samadhi and heart, sort of the samadhi part. And so we're on to panya, 
um, those of you who know the three trainings in Buddhism. And so today would be wisdom and insight. And you may have noticed in the Chaitanya Sutta that after it goes through the parts that are about the beautiful and wholesome, they're all beautiful, all those qualities, but the ones that we recognize as gladness and joy and tranquility and so forth, it goes on to uh, disenchantment and dispassion and liberation. So um, it kind of flows on, like our nat uh, when we have these positive mind states, they naturally flow on to being able to see clearly. That's the next one actually after concentration is seeing things as they have come to be. And so we start to see clearly. And when the mind is in this um, special heightened state, it has a better chance of really seeing how suffering works and how conditionality works and um, some of the, the ways that we've been living that are not actually in alignment with what's gonna be for our, our best well-being. So um, this this so that's kind of one thing is that there's this flow that's gonna naturally go toward what we're talking about today. But also you notice that in that Chaitanya Sutta, there's no self in there. It doesn't ever say, you do the next step. <laughs> it just says it's natural that if there's this, there will be that. If there's this, there will be that. So there's sort of, um, there's an implication that we're not actually doing this process so actively. And that's some, something that's very interesting and would take a long time to really unfold. But I just wanna put that little idea in because it'll be relevant today. Many of you know that wisdom um, often involves seeing what are called the three characteristics of anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And so we're not gonna, it's not gonna be a class though just about those three characteristics. We're gonna take it in a little different direction. So that's why I'm just telling you up front that um, we're gonna get more into some of the specifics of them and particularly the second two, dukkha and anatta today. So with that, I will pass it on to Diana. Um, thanks. Yeah, great, thank you, Kim. I, one thing that I have to say that I love about the Dharma and that I love about study and study and practice together and practicing with other people is that sometimes we revisit things uh, again and again. And what's maybe the first time we heard something or experienced something, we have one understanding, but as we see it again or hear it again or read it again or talk about it again, all these different ways we can engage with the Dharma, we might get new understandings. And it seems like, at least my experience is there's this incredible depth where things just, there's more and more uh, uh, facets or um, more and more subtle ways in which to see things. And part of that might be related to the way that we see dukkha that perhaps when we first um, started practicing the way that we understood dukkha, I think all of you know, is usually translated as suffering, but really represents this really uh, wide spectrum. Maybe when we first started practicing, we thought about dukkha as, you know, the, those unfortunate life circumstances we find ourselves in, the, our living situation, our relationships, um, this, um, our jobs or, uh, pain in the knee, like really obvious things of difficulty. But then the more we practice, maybe it's um, expanded this uh, understanding of what dukkha is to include things that are uh, not so obvious. 
So with meditation, as the mind quiets down and gets settled, and we just become aware that it's even possible to be that settled, then we start might calling things dukkha that aren't that settled. That is, dukkha is like just unsettled, unquiet, uncalm. So it, whereas we might have considered that um, not dukkha before, but once you have this experience of some calmness, things that are less calm, right, get thrown into highlight. So in this same way in which that we might understand dukkha differently as, the, as belonging along the spectrum, and the more we practice, the more subtle versions of dukkha we become aware of, in the same way, we might understand this sense of self. That is, there are times in which the self, the sense, the feeling of having a self, being a self, is really exaggerated and clear. And there are times in which it is much more subtle. And I'd like to talk about that a little bit more. But first, um, I'll say that um, a big part of practice, if not all of practice, is about helping us to see this difference um, in between the really gross forms and the really subtle forms of dukkha and self, so that we can uh, uproot, we can dismantle, we can let go of, undermine the more and more subtle forms of dukkha and the subtle forms of having a sense of self. So, so liberation and freedom are, do not include dukkha. They do not include having a strong sense of self. So it's this movement towards the more subtle forms is this movement towards liberation and freedom. So one way that we might understand dukkha is, as I was pointing, mentioning with the meditation, how it's like less calm or less still, but maybe another way to talk about it is that when there's states of meditation in which there can be a real sense of ease and spaciousness. You know, and this is sometimes is um, more obvious than other times, but there can be a time with meditation, right, when there's just a sense of spaciousness and things are arising and passing, but there's a certain amount of, um, I'm gonna use this word spaciousness with it. And so we can understand dukkha as anything that's really constricts and contracts and tightens that sense of uh, spaciousness. And this can be felt in the body. It's obvious ways our shoulders go up or um, maybe we clench our jaw. Or it can be felt in the mind that our sense of awareness gets really narrow and we kind of like really glom on to something. That can be a, a sense of uh, dukkha relative to the spaciousness, but also a sense of self, that there's a me here that's separate and distinct from everything else out there. In the same way that can be felt as a type of a constriction, can be felt as a type of tightness, a loss 
of spaciousness. So in order to make this a little bit um, more concrete, um, I can uh, give an example. And that is about when we blame. When we blame ourselves, when we blame others, there's a real strong sense of self, like I'm here and I shouldn't have done that. And I can't believe I did that. I'm always this type of person who is always saying the wrong thing. And when am I gonna learn to do it, not to say the wrong thing? Or I can't believe that person over there said that. Don't they know that's awful or unskillful or harmful or something like that? So in a way that which kind of like solidifies sense of self here, and a sense of self there, and we're blaming one of these senses of selves, either ourselves or the others. So blame is a place where we can be particularly constricted. And so when we make a mistake or something goes wrong, we almost instinctively turn towards blame. Yeah. And it may be such a habit that we don't even notice it. But if we're viewing our experience through this lens of I'll use this word constriction or spaciousness. Then we can just notice when do we feel more spacious, both in the body and mind, and when do we feel more constricted. Going towards constriction is associated with dukkha. It's also associated with having a strong sense of self. This kind of uh, us versus them mode of thinking is... Um, when it's really predominant when we're blaming. And so there's this um, sense of uh, this conclusion that we've made about an experience that I'm at fault or that person is at fault or, you know, maybe some um, institution is at fault or, but that institution is out there and whatever they did is affecting me over here. So it, again, is another place in which we might reify or solidify or constrict this sense of self. And as if that weren't uh, unpleasant enough to feel separated, to feel tight and uneasy, then um, to make it worse is that this, we can calcify this sense of self into um, I'm the one on which this terrible thing happened. And then, and I'm going to blame everybody else or everything else. And then that kind of affects the way that we view things, the way that we view ourselves and the way that we view the world. And then that creates the conditions for more of the same to arise. That is, we'll um, interpret things a certain way or perceive things a certain way. So blame is a place in which there's an obvious sense of constriction and um, dukkha. But now to just to make it even a little bit more obvious with something more of a concrete um, example is to um, suggest that we can look at uh, any situation and we can unpack it, we can review it, we can look at it again. We can use the inquiry, which we talked about at the beginning of this course, to better understand 
the conditions that support it. So that is what's underlying everything that happened, what supported it. So rather than just this strong sense of me, what were the different things that came together that um, created the conditions for that experience to arise? And looking at the conditions just naturally softens some of the sense of self and some of the blame. Okay, so an, an example might be that um, you go to meet your friend and that, um, and she's telling you some difficulty she's going through. And you're listening as attentively and sympathetically as you can. But at the same time, you notice that there's some disquiet within yourself. And you just have this flickering little thought that maybe you should have more empathy, you should have more compassion. But somehow you're not really quite moved by what your friend is telling you about her difficulty. And then later this bothers you and you wonder if there's something wrong with you. Like what this was, she was, it was difficult for her and why couldn't you quite connect to that? And maybe you suspect, maybe you blame yourself that you have this capacity for empathy is underdeveloped or you're an uncaring person. And even though you've done all this practice, maybe you're just a cold hearted person, right? So Here's a, this is just a subtle example where we might have a, an interaction with somebody and, and this might be a way in which blame just kind of creeps in that we blame ourselves that we couldn't quite connect or have the empathy or sympathy or compassion that we would expect when our friend whom we care about is having a difficulty. But this way of looking, of viewing, focuses on ourself and we hold ourself responsible for everything that happened. And it fails to see how other conditions might be at play here. Instead, it just, there's like this constriction of a sense of self and it's all due to this self and that feels heavy and burdensome and dukkha. So, one way that we can unpack this and to, um, is to use what we know of uh, our dharma practice and to see what other conditions were there. What were all the conditions that were there? Maybe we can see all of them, but we can use a framework in which to um, help us see. So maybe this unfulfilling connection, interaction we had with our friend, was a result of something as basic as just maybe we were tired. Maybe we have lack of sleep or overwork or for whatever reason. And then when we judge ourselves, we tend to not be sensitive to what's going on with ourselves. We're so busy beating ourselves up that we don't notice our tiredness or maybe we don't even notice um, some of the difficulty that we're having. Our, our, our own experience. Or maybe our diminished response to our friend is something a little bit more complex. Maybe there was some slight tension between you and your friend the last time you met. And maybe it was small and 
you thought it was insignificant, but that slight tension between the last time you just met um, somehow affects your openness and your um, empathy with your friend. Or maybe there's something that you, you can't quite put your finger on it, but there's some way in which she is telling her story to you that inhibited your heart, that didn't allow your heart to open. Perhaps she was holding back and was a little bit clinical or analytical about it. Or maybe she was kind of just offhand in the way that she was talking about this story that was describing a difficulty, but the, the way in which she described it didn't match the content of what she was saying. And then you, you felt like um, you couldn't quite resonate with what she was saying, the content, because the manner in which she was saying it. So in some ways, maybe she was disconnected from herself. Or maybe alternatively, she was hamming it up and exaggerating and making it seem really funny. Or, but it wasn't, you know, it was actually a real difficulty. And so maybe that was part of the reason why you couldn't connect to it. Or maybe her sharing was in some way a little bit aggressive towards you for some reason that you don't even know why. So it's definitely not that we want to blame our friend for that just, because um, of course there are conditions for the reason why she showed up. But the point is to recognize that we don't have to fall into, well, this is my fault and I take responsibility and I'm a person who doesn't care about others or something like this. But just to recognize that there's so many things that come together to create any event all events and and to sense when we are blaming and to sense when there is this um, constriction when we're feeling like it's um, all of us or all somebody else or something else they turn out they're all the same that they're just like creating these constricted uh, entities so one way to help us to help us like figure out or determine or examine or inquire into um, some of the conditions is we can use this framework. And um, this is from Rob Berbea. This framework of there can be present inner conditions, present outer conditions, past inner conditions and past outer conditions. So what does that mean? So the present inner condition. So what was happening? You, what was your inner experience while you were hearing um, your friend uh, tell the story about her difficulty? It could be um, states of mind. It could be beliefs, perceptions. It could be how the body is. So in that story that I just told, it could be the fact that you were tired. It's kind of like this present inner condition. The present outer condition could be the way in which your friend was um, telling the story, that she seemed disconnected from herself or she was hamming it up so it didn't feel maybe like it was as difficult or whatever it might be. So something that was 
you that was out, um, not your inner experience, but was happening at the same time. Then a past inner ex uh, condition might be habits of mind um, that we have, or maybe states of mind. So in the above situation, in the one that I told about the earlier situation, there might be some feelings left unresolved from your last meeting. There that could be like some of this past inner conditions. And then some of the past outer conditions could be um, some external influences from our history or things that, um, that happened to us maybe when we were young, that uh, when people told us stories that the, can influence the way in which we hear our stories now. So these are just loose categories. Um, maybe that's not obvious what all of them are for each situation, but it's just a reminder for us to be aware of what's happening in the present moment that's creating conditions and what are some of the past things in the past that are creating the conditions and both the inner, what's happening in our inner experience and outer experience. So in this way, Rather than in the example, having a creating or having a self that we blame, instead we just see, oh, it's just all these conditions came together and this is what happened. There doesn't have to be a self. There doesn't, it loosens that, it loosens the dukkha, it loosens the constrictions. And we can start to then see things in a different way in which there then can be a way forward or a new ideas or instead of this inner critic or constriction, this strong sense of self or blame. Or... So I hope that wasn't uh, too confusing or something, but this way in which looking at conditions, both inner and outer, past and present, can be a way in which we can unravel constriction, which is a way in which we experience both dukkha and a strong sense of self. So with that, I think I'll um, turn it over to Kim. Great. Okay. Thank you. Um, thank you, Diana. Um, so now you'll get a chance to talk about some of these um, ideas among yourselves. And in particular, we had these sort of two ideas of this sense of self and, and it's sort of constricting feeling, particularly during blame, as well as the confluence of conditions that come together to create any particular situation. So we're gonna put you into breakout groups. And the first question will be one where um, you'll just go around. We've done this before. Each person maybe offer just one short idea and then the next person a short idea and if you know you might go around more than once and so the the prompt for that first one is to go around and offer a brief comment on how the mind and body feel during blame as well as the sense of self that might be there uh, during such a, uh, a time you know these are, as diana said if this is blame is a time when the sense of self is particularly strong so it should be fairly clear so how do the mind and body feel when you have a strong sense of self, such as during blame? 
So there are various dimensions. If, if it would help to get your mind around it, um, you may want to jot down things like breadth of awareness, um, the flexibility that you feel in the situation, your creativity, your ability to flow with minor upsets that tend to happen or anything else, but just how does it feel to be in that state? Um, and then after a few minutes, I will prompt you, you'll switch. It'll be the same question, but you'll, be, you'll talk about commenting on your sense of self on a sunny, easeful day when you're just out relaxing, you know, then what about the breadth of awareness, flexibility, et cetera? You can be concrete about these. Um, and then if we have time for a few minutes at the end, uh, the discussion can be more open about how it is beneficial to see things in terms of conditions. You know, any thoughts you have on that? And I'll write these prompts in the box also, but um, so keep an eye out for little things that might come be coming. But anyway, uh, we'll put you now into groups and you'll begin with how the mind and body feel when you have a strong sense of self, such as during blame. Okay. Are you, are you going to, are you going to tell us when we should switch to the second? I am. Um, I'm going to tell you when you should make each switch. Yeah. And I think we'll do Oh, I need to change this, sorry. Um, okay. Off you go. Okay, so welcome back. Are there any comments from all of that? How was that? I saw some thumbs up, that sounds good. Was it uh, easy, straightforward to talk about sense of self? And uh, I kept on like doing this with my hands while I was talking, I don't know. But <laughs> I can't help but I'm kind of do that. But, uh... Heidi. Um, I, I think that the uh, ear, putting it in terms of constriction or spaciousness. I think we all pretty much related to that. And I, I wanted to ask a question. Um, it seems to me that the sense of blame is something that is, is happens not only in individuals, but also in groups and societally and politically and uh, that, that having somebody else to blame creates kind of a sense of self, a group cohesion. Um, if we can be blaming somebody else, then, then we can feel cohesed as, as have a self identity as a group, which can often be very negative. Yeah, exactly. Very well said. Did we see your hand earlier, Susan? Oh, you're muted. There. Uh, I can even sort of remember what I was going to say. Diana asked, was it easy to talk about the self? And I, I'm really trying to wrap my head around selfing and all of that. So 
it's not easy for me to, to get to it, but it, it's progress is being made. So it's good to have exercises like this that, um, that take me there. And also the uh, thinking of conditions, when you said that, um, when you were talking, giving the talk, uh, immediately flashed to something that happened to me today, not a very you know, no big deal thing, but I could just see conditions that led to my doing the thing that I did. And it was just very, very helpful. That, so thank you. Great, thank you, Susan. Yeah, it can really, you know, it's just to look at things a little bit differently. Like just instead of, you know, just the same event, just using a different lens, a different perspective can make a big difference. And that is so much what Dharma practice is about, is helping us to be more flexible in our view and see them in different ways. Thank you, Susan. Anybody else have a comment, Dan? Um, so Diana, I, um, <clears throat> you fill up my mind a little more than uh, I, I think was, uh, <laughs> came across some of the questions we were asked. So I, I really feel like there's so much going on in what you presented. Um, and in some ways, it's really uh, at the core of how I think about how the Dharma works. One, one of the things that, uh, that you didn't mention is the element of time. So when, when this gets talked about, this, this idea of uh, conditions and what we're feeling in a situation, and, and blame is as good as example as any, is how much is coming up in the moment. And when we talk about that in the, from a sort of psychological sense, then we take it apart and we go, well, let's see, right now this is happening and this is happening. I'm feeling this and that shouldn't happen and they're doing this and blah. So this is kind of analytical process that is described, but that's not how the Dharma works, I don't believe. The Dharma works when you're on the cushion. So we, we learn that there are conditions and we instinctively, when the Dharma is working, we instinctively know that those things are arising in the moments when we're having that conversation with someone else. And so we can create that space. We naturally create that space. It's just available to us because we're not constricting, wrapping around this sense of uh, who is blaming who and all of that stuff is going on. Because one of the things we realize is the experience is not complete yet. So when the discussion is taking place, we always want to kind of control what's happening from moment to moment so we can think that we're understanding it. Does this make sense? So, so I want to control the flow of my own experience so I know how to respond at any moment. And that's when I start blaming often. But if there's spaciousness, I can let the experience take place. I don't have to have that sense of reactivity, the constant being ready to react. I can let the experience occur. 
I can have the sense of this, this really sort of instinctive sense of what am I bringing to this experience? What is arising for me? What are all of these conditions? And simultaneously the same sense that I don't have to bring these into play. I don't have to do that. So I just think that this is such a huge part of practice and a huge uh, sort of differentiating factor between what happens in practice and what happens in psychological analysis, if I can just it's a completely different approach to me. Um, so that's, that's all I have to say. Yeah, thank you, Dan. So Kim will be um, talking about this a little bit more, but I, I, I love what you're pointing to. It's in the, also to say, right, there are different ways we can view things. And sometimes it's helpful when we find ourselves stuck. Like when we're just going, you know, feel like we're just going around and around and not going anywhere. It can be really helpful to think, to kind of like broaden our view and to be thinking about conditions to do analysis, right? This is post-talk, this is after something happened. It's not instinctual, just like you're saying. But you're right, of course, there are these, uh, when we're, things are just uh, arising in the moment, there's this way in which when we experience dukkha, we can just notice, oh, this dukkha is there because there is a um, constriction and to let the constriction go without any analysis whatsoever. I think that's what you were- Yes, I, I think I left out. I Yes, and I think I left out uh, the inquiry because of course situations which we realize a level of discomfort has occurred. We want to go back and do inquiry to see, you know, what what was really happening at that um, at that point. That's very useful. But I think uh, maybe the underlying thing here is. Just to remind, just to this idea that conditions cause things to arise rather than a self that's making things arise. And this can get viewed at, played with, examined so many different ways on the cushion and off the cushion. Okay, well. Unless there's anything else pressing, maybe this is a good time to um, take a bit of a break. Is there any um, anything else? Oh, I see people already moving toward. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Let's have a break until um, let's come back at seven thirty-five or thirty-five after the hour, depending where you are. So, see you then. Or maybe I'll just wait a moment for. People hearing my voice maybe to come back with their cup of tea or whatever it might be. You could ask Brian to juggle for us. I felt <laughs> envy I felt envy arising. <laughs> <laughs> We'll do a, a little sit. We'll sit together for a little bit. And this won't be guided, but
but I will drop in. I'm going to read a poem um, partway through. And we're, we're not going to sit for very long, maybe about 15 minutes or so. So just settling in. And I'll just say a few words here at the beginning to get us going. It can be helpful to just sit and know you're sitting. What are the different ways? How do you know that you're sitting? Getting connected to this experience right now. As the body quiets down, that in the mind become a little settled, using the body as an anchor perhaps. And as we tune into the bodily experience, of course we notice the body's breathing. So if that's your practice to be with the sensations of breathing. Or perhaps the sensations arising in the body more generally. And of course, the mind is used to thinking as a momentum behind thinking. So when we find ourselves lost in thought, we just very gently with warmth and kindness, begin again.
So now I'd like to offer a poem. by Rosemary Traumer. It goes like this. In the secret temple of my heart was an altar with nothing on it. I love nothing, the pure potential of it. Sometimes when others journeyed here, I sensed they were surprised, perhaps even sorry for me. As if it would be better with a lotus or a cross or a star or a figurine or a photo of someone or a stone, always something. I tried, in fact, to put things on the altar, but no thing let itself stay. There was a day when, in a single moment, the altar had everything on it. And by everything, I mean everything. Every bee, every stick, every plastic bag and beetle, every crushed empty can, every crumpled shirt, every door handle, compass, broken thermometer, apple, trash can, tree, everything. And it was so beautiful, I wept for hours. Oh, the pure potential of it. And then that altar was no longer in some secret temple in my heart, but everywhere. Everywhere a place to worship. Everything, a prayer waiting to be heard, to be touched. And inside, the most beautiful nothing. Not even an altar, which is oddly everything. I can't say how. Sometimes when I'm quiet enough, I notice it. Sometimes when I get out of the way, I fall all the way in.
thank you. And we'll turn it over to Kim. Okay. So we've been looking at this possibility of seeing experience simply as a confluence of conditions. And some of these we have control over, many of them we don't. So this can really take the wind out of the sails of blame, whether it's self-blame or blame of others. It's just to start to see in this way. And it can do more also. So I wanna unfold some of the implications of this confluence of conditions. And first, I want to introduce uh, a new term uh, into this discussion. So the fact that experience is made up of shifting, changing conditions is actually what is called emptiness. Okay, so it's empty of an unchanging essence. Sometimes that term is kind of disconcerting or intimidating to people, but this is really all it means. This is at least one way of, of defining emptiness. And there's a lot of associated wisdom um, that we can unpack from this. So first of all, uh, let's, we can deliberately acknowledge that the fact that the self is conditioned, is made up of conditions, also means that it is constructed. So the sense of self is made up of a conglomeration of physical and mental components. And we really get the sense of it being constructed when we're able to watch it come into being. Um, one time I was on retreat at the Insight Retreat Center in Santa Cruz and I was out doing walking meditation in the parking lot and I was walking back and forth um, by a row of cars. And it was, it was great. I was pretty far into the retreat and I was just um, doing my thing for quite a while. And then I had this memory came through my head that I was walking near where I had parked when I arrived at the retreat center now quite some time earlier. And suddenly I saw my car, which I had been walking by for, a long time, but I didn't recognize it as my car. But as soon as I had that memory, oh wait, isn't this isn't this roughly where I parked? And then I looked, and like one of the cars like became different. <laughs> you know, it just it just the whole visual field changed, and it's like oh, it's my car. Oh right, and like I sort of instinctually looked. Oh, are the tires still inflated? You know, it's like you know, suddenly there's like all this stuff going on in the mind and. It was just, it was a perfect Vipassana moment though, because I was so happy that I had that sense of self arise because I got to see it and just come into being and just change my experience of, of the relative proportion of things that I was taking in. So the, the sense of self is always like this. It distorts or it shrinks or it somehow changes um, an otherwise more uniform or more smooth or more spacious uh, knowing of our experience in that moment. It's also uh, a process. You know, we can see that it's being constructed in that moment. Uh, it wasn't there for a while and then it, it was there. And while it was there, it was clearly being constructed at that time. 
So if you do happen to, you know, catch a self arising, um, you don't need to be upset about that or, you know, the object is not that we will somehow make it go away or once it happens, it's a bad thing. It's like anything else, um, you know, if we're seeing it, it's no problem. And in fact, it's useful some of the time to have a, a sense of self. It's not, yeah, so um, don't worry about it, but in fact, be kind of fascinated by it like I was and when I was doing the walking meditation. So this idea then about the constructed nature of experience um, really gives us an important clue to practice because we can start thinking, well, if it's constructed, could it be constructed better in some way? I mean, if, if we're gonna build things, we might as well build them well. Um, if we're gonna construct things, why would we choose to construct blame, which is painful and, and constricted, right? So um, we can start with, you know, what is it that I started by saying we don't have control over very many of the conditions. So we could start though thinking about the view that we bring into a situation um, that's something where we do have some uh, choice sometimes if we know that it's there. So this would be part of what Diana called present inner conditions is the view that we're bringing into a situation. And in the example, you know, we had a view somehow of ourself as, um, I don't know, not compassionate or not able to connect or something like that. So there's some, there's that view coming in. But, uh, and then that led, of course, to some kind of blame of how bad we were or whether, you know, something about our friend, something like that. But if we see that that's what's going on, we've done some, we have some sense, oh, this is a, an inner condition that's happening right now, we might be able to uh, make some other choice. Uh, and that would at least change a little bit of the total set of conditions there. I want to offer a quote from Rob Verbea, the um, the teacher that Diana also mentioned. It may be that the view affects to some extent how the whole situation unfolds externally, for it is immediately clear that if the view softens, emotions and reactivities soften too. And this softening is naturally communicated into the whole mix of conditions. Then the web of conditions is different and it may be different enough to sometimes affect the situation so that a different outcome ensues. So it can, we can see that there's all these inner and outer conditions at play, but we may be able to, in that moment, soften a little bit the view that we have, choose not to go for the blame. If we see it starting to come, maybe relax and try to kind of open a little bit. Uh, and this is just, this then adds something different to the mix. It's not a control, you can't make things happen, but you know, sometimes that will be the tipping point toward things unfolding differently in that particular interaction. At the very least, we'll feel a little bit better on the inside. So understanding that these inner and outer conditions are all that's going into a situation is right view. It's a form of wisdom. It's correct to view situations in that way. And this, you know, this comes out of our, of our practice. This is a form of wisdom that can arise when we have this understanding. So then we see that there's just this confluence of conditions. We're much less likely to blame others and ourselves. You know, why would we choose to, to do it that way? It's just conditions. 
course it played out as it did. How else could it have been? So then we're less likely to think that we're a bad person or our friend is you know, something wrong with them, something like that. And so then we might also get a little bit more proactive about that and consider, well, what is it that I could, how could I start conditioning my mind and body just anyway as part of practice such that you're not so much manipulating, like how can I make this particular situation work? Like what would we, what would we do in general to always be bringing in some kind of a positive support into the uh, conditions that we're creating? So um, why not? <laughs> um, be, you probably won't be surprised to hear that um, the Brahma Viharas are excellent conditions to generally be creating and I think um, probably like Christy said earlier on, we think, oh, of course, that would make a lot of sense. And then we find that we don't remember to do that a lot of the time. So I'm reminding us all now is that it's helpful to keep the heart and mind in a generally an open state, a sense of friendliness of, you know, not necessarily trusting everything automatically, but at least carrying uh, not a strong mistrust of a situation and just seeing how things go. Um, so this is, um, this is an interesting point then that I now wanna highlight and point to is that understanding emptiness, which means understanding this conditionality naturally leads to the desire to have love and compassion. So this is maybe a little surprising. That's why I highlighted it. Often people think of emptiness as this kind of cold wisdom idea. It is a wisdom idea, but it doesn't have to be cold. If you understand emptiness, you would naturally want to be warm and uh, bring in good, good conditions from your own heart. So it's just uh, natural. Speaking of that sutta that we read last time, it's just natural. It's quite natural that if you see in terms of emptiness, uh, you will be more loving and compassionate. You will want to be that way. So seeing emptiness can actually help us take steps that will heal our heart and connect with others. So that at a very simple level, we can see that you know, our own past conditioning has a big influence on how we see others. I'm now adding a little more wisdom in another dimension of this. Um, we are contributing to what we see in them. It's not just how they are. What's that quote? We don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. I think that's um, something else that we learn from this kind of teaching. And so this alone can open the space to be a little bit more merciful, shall we say. Um, you know, it's, it's like my relationship with Diana, for example, is... Um, is that I can never really see her completely separately from my own mind. How could I? I have to see her through my mind. And so um, there's a way in which the little part of Diana that I'm able to experience, which is not all of her, um, is filtered in some way through my mind. And so in a sense, it might not even be separate from my mind. Wow, it's like the mind is suddenly seen to be so primary in our experience. And so then why wouldn't we? You know, condition our mind with metta, with uh, friendliness, with coming into situations as seeing people potentially as a friend um, until we have other information. Uh, this is um, natural once we start to understand this conditionality and the primacy of our mind in being the place where we can influence the conditions that are in a particular situation. 
And then it can even go farther than that in the sense that um, when the mind is operating more in a, a space of love and compassion, which are more universal kind of feelings, naturally less connected to a sense of self and a contraction like we've been talking about, uh, there's a way in which that colors our perception. And um, I'm again gonna use Robert Bea's words on this. When qualities such as generosity, metta and compassion are strong, all perception is colored. We see beauty everywhere, in other sentient beings, in nature, in the most mundane and ordinary situations and objects. Things can seem to be lit from within themselves with a quality of love, peace, or joy. So what we bring can have profound effects on our experience. And this is a very much, of course, one of these virtuous circles, not a vicious circle where we see, we have a loving heart, we see things as more beautiful, and then we are more positively inclined toward them. And it's, um, it can uh, feed on itself or at least support itself. And it's an important part of practice that we develop this way of seeing and this um, kind of experience. It's not the aim of practice. Uh, we'll get to some other points about this later, but it is an important piece and it can really shift our understanding of what's possible through practice and through experience. So we, you know, we have an influence on how our world is made. Um, it's one more thing that's constructed is this whole experience that we're having. So this takes us back then to the poem that was read inserted into your mind during the um, during the sitting. So let's read that again now with some of these teachings in mind about emptiness leading to love and beauty and connection and healing. In the secret temple of my heart was an altar with nothing on it. I love nothing, the pure potential of it. Sometimes when others journeyed here, I sensed they were surprised, perhaps even sorry for me, as if it would be better with a lotus or a cross or a star or a figurine or a photo of someone or a stone, always something. I tried, in fact, to put things on the altar, but no thing let itself stay. There was a day when in a single moment, the altar had everything on it. And by everything, I mean everything. Every bee, every stick, every plastic bag and beetle, every crushed empty can, every crumpled shirt, every door handle, compass, broken thermometer, apple, trash can, tree, everything. It was so beautiful, I wept for hours. Oh, the pure potential of it. And then that altar was no longer in some secret temple in my heart, but everywhere. Everywhere a place to worship. Everything a prayer waiting to be heard, to be touched. And inside the most beautiful nothing, not even an altar, 
which is oddly everything. I can't say how. Sometimes when I am quiet enough, I notice it. Sometimes when I get out of the way, I fall all the way in. So there's something quite beautiful about nothing, which is not so different from everything. And um, I think I'll leave it off here and that you'll get a chance to talk about this in a moment. Um, but maybe I'll just say that um, next time we'll be talking about uh, awakening and the uh, possibility of the Dharma pervading our whole life of really the name of this course, the Dharma life. And, you know, we're getting into territory that is um, you know, maybe uh, something that's that you've intuited or even experienced um, yourself. And it's very helpful to start putting some language to it like we're doing today. It's not meant to be something literal or grabbed onto, but more um, related to poetically, you know, like in the poem. And I'm going to see for yourself what, what's resonating out of what we've been talking about and, and just let it keep working in your heart. I can also put into the chat, because I thought some of you might want to know um, the link to this poem online. So let me get that there. called After Reading What's in the Temple by Tom Barrett, I Consider His Question. And that's the title of the poem. So are we just about ready, Diana? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Great. Thank you. I wasn't sure that was the title of the poem. <laughs> I didn't know if that was like a little uh, comment or something like this. Um, so Evie, I can see your question, how does accountability fit in? Well, um, return back to that after we do some uh, the breakout group here. So for this um, breakout group, um, there's a number of ways in which we can uh, approach this uh, topic of what uh, Kim and I are pointing to. And we'll start out with this idea of just to explore maybe beyond the obvious answer or any obvious answer that is um, stretch yourself to see if there's something beyond the obvious about what is in your experience and your understanding the relationship between a sense of self and happiness or well-being or ease. What, 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 is, what is the relationship there? A more constricted sense of self and its relationship to happiness, a more spacious sense of health, spacious sense of self and its relationship to happiness. And we'll start there. And then um, I'll put uh, in the, you'll see what the, the next question will be. So again, we'll be in groups of four uh, or three. And it's really, I think it's really nice to do the, um, 
small. Um, Dan asked that Rob, Rob Barbea, yes, we'll talk about that too at, at, after this. Um, um, I think it's really nice to do this where we do, uh, where one person says just what they are, uh, one idea, and then it goes to this next person, and then it goes to the next person, and then it goes to the next, and then it, it might come back around to you, and then you can say something else and allowing yourself to be influenced by others, by what you hear and maybe what's um, bubbles up with you. So in this way, we can kind of like stretch ourselves and go beyond just what's obvious. So this relationship between having a sense of self and happiness and in your experience or your understanding. Okay, so um, after a few minutes, I'll send you the next question. Have fun. Was it interesting? Was it boring? Did you even talk about something else? Did it seem like they were non sequitur? Are they related? I don't know. There's so many different things we could uh, talk about. Was, would anybody like to share how it happened? Uh, some of the maybe insights or things that you shared in the small groups? It was very similar to the first set. I, I mean, I think we were struggling a little bit for that reason. I think even though we hadn't all talked to each other, we felt like we had already um, kind of, we were struggling to figure out if it was a different question or really it seemed like a lot of the same, a lot of overlap. Because huh. you guys are already so familiar with emptiness. Okay, okay, that's fair. Yes, uh, Heidi. Uh, we talked some about how uh, sometimes it feels easier to not feel so self-constricted when we're alone or sometimes in the rare, how, how it can be precious when we can be in a group and are with other people and not feel that constricted sense of self, the comfort in that. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Heidi. Anybody else have a yes, Morgan? Diana knows this because she gets to see me in the throes of this um, seeing emptiness and and how experience is the result of shifting changes, shifting um, conditions, um, and. <laughs> I made the mistake of going for a walk on the Golden Gate Bridge after having seen some, seen some of this in class that I was with Diana in and came back and was like, oh my gosh. And she had to put her hands on my shoulders and say, you're okay. And somebody in our group, I was describing another one of those experiences and somebody, someone in my group said, it's, it's, it, well, it's a really, it's an amazing thing to see emptiness 
as see this, but it can be very disconcerting for every reality. And that has definitely sometimes been my experience. And it's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's beautiful to see the altar and to fall in. And then there's a moment on that free fall sometimes where, yeah, no words. I don't know. I don't, I'm not a poet. I can't put, but I, I, um, I think um, Kim said, let it keep working in the heart. And so I let it keep working in the heart. Beautiful. Nice. 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 Yeah. Yeah. It can definitely it can be disorienting. <laughs> So our group, when we go rotate, um, hang on, Dan. Um, I think it was Lydia who was speaking. Um, so when our group is go around and to discuss, talk about this subject, we're saying, you know, we're trying to get away from the traditional happiness definition in our society. And we like to have this the more deeper grounded sense of happiness. That uh, could be contentment, could be, um, you know, gladness, uh, just something more, um, you know, uh, it's grounded more grounded. And um, then we feel so much more encouraged, hopeful that there's with change of some of the conditioning that could change the course of our um, karma. And even though we cannot say we want certain consequence, um, certain result, but we can put into the conditioning. Beautiful, beautiful. Affecting the conditions, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Lydia. I'm looking at the time. I see that it's 29 minutes after eight o'clock. I think I'll turn it over to Kim. Okay, um, Dan, was your comment quick? Um, I think there was just a mix up on who was speaking next, but if you're, if you had something quick. It's going to be very quick. And uh, since we're at the end, I just want to say that this two hours has felt so incredibly full to me and rich, both in the big group and in the smaller groups, um, kind of was rendered actually speechless in the small group that we had. Um, I just feel really grateful for, um, for this class and for everyone here. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. I'm sorry that I had just kicked it over to Kim without to turn it over to you. So thank you. Thank you, Kim, for asking Dan. Okay, well, um, we are right near the end, but I'll just say briefly that, um, and of course, you'll get an email, but as a little preview, 
um, we're hoping that you might try this oppor the opportunity, try to find an opportunity to do this inner, outer, present and past um, idea that Diana introduced for understanding what conditions are present in a particular situation. And maybe we'll choose one where there's a strong sense of self to make it really clear. Um, and we're gonna send you a little sheet with a summary of that idea so you can kind of follow it along if it's of interest. So that'll, it's a pretty fun exercise actually. And then there's also gonna be um, uh, just a few readings, one from um, uh, Gill's book, The Monastery Within and also a sutta. So um, we're gonna be back for our last class on, is it December 15th? Is that um, whatever the middle uh, Sunday in December is? And I hope you can all make it because um, you know it will be kind of the uh, conclusion of our time together. And I feel like we've really grown as a group and connected as a group. And so look forward to this um, final time together. Thanks everyone. Anything else, Diana? No, no, just my heart is full of appreciation and gratitude. It's such a wonderful thing to practice together. I love it. So maybe we'll... Um, I invite both of you to continue this group again, uh, have another six sessions. Um, that would be beneficial to all of us. <laughs> a little dust in our eyes. <laughs> That's very sweet. Thank you, Betsy. Thank you. Kim and I definitely will be talking about well, what happens next. So uh, we haven't started those conversations yet. First, we wanted to see, uh, I, I was going to make a joke about Kim and I teaching together, but we've taught together before. I, I love teaching with Kim. She's so great. <laughs> so right. uh, I thought maybe we would just all unmute and say goodbye together in a in an unorganized, loud way. So, bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Everybody. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Diana. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Next month. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.